We're in thir- chapter 13. As it stands, <clears throat> pardon me, we're going to be landing the end of 2 Samuel, beginning in December. If you're, if you're new to us today, you probably wonder, you know, what am I talking about? We, we literally go verse by verse by verse in Scripture. So we started beginning of the year in 1 Samuel, and uh, we just talk about each, sometimes verses are, are will hunker down a little bit more. Sometimes we'll capture two chapters. Today, we're, we're going to cover one chapter. Um, a lot of it, I'm just going to read. If um, anyone has ever been through the horror of what uh, Tamar is going through, um, I would just you know, hope you would know that as I read through this, and you know, I don't even think I'm objective without emotion on it, but it's a very heavy chapter. It's a chapter that does not, does not hold back from any um, any of the pain that Tamar had, but I'll just give you a background in case you've walked in here, have no knowledge. King David is now reigning over Israel. Uh, he, we learned last week that he violated, he slept with a woman that was married. She ended up having a child. He killed her husband and the child dies. Uh, the dysfunctionality has begun. I don't know about you and I, but I used, I used to look around in churches and think, everybody's got it together but me. You know, I would look at families and think, man, they've got it together. Like that guy, he's, he's a husband, father. And you look around and you, you just start to think less of yourself. Then you go into ministry and you see and God has allowed me to see there is not one perfect family in the existence of this earth. There's a few that are knocking on the door, I think. Like, wow, they're pretty, you know. But even they'll say, I'm just waiting for a word of one thing. You know, like, and I think it's good. I think it's good that we don't have another functional savior to compare ourselves to. To look at and say, well, we hope to be like these people. And keep in mind, scripture is written on the backs of a guy like David. A man like David, who is obviously full of sin. He was told last week by Nathan, a prophet, who said, the sword will never leave your home, which means there's going to be turmoil to follow you for a long time. Now, let's pick up in chapter 13 and um, and verse 1. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin. And it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Now, if you're wondering, is that what I'm reading? Is that what I'm, am I hearing? There's a brother lusting after a sister? Absolutely. Remember, he had multiple children. Tamar has a brother named Absalom. Amnon is a half-brother. Amnon, by the way, is firstborn. You know what firstborn means? You're next in line to be king. Amnon is one of the ultimate hierarchy. And so Amnon is absolutely physically ill in his lust and want and passion for this woman. Keep in mind, this is a society where they didn't blend. There's a segregation of men and women in social uh, arenas, if they, uh, if they rioted, the men rioted. If they, if they went to worship, the men would sit here and the women would sit here. If it was a social arena and 
you're invited to a home, there would never be, there would never be a single person <clears throat> in the presence of a married couple, ever. Uh, if you go to Saudi Arabia, go to some of the other countries in the Middle East, to this day, if you go in a grocery store, there's a family line and a single line. If you go to Chili's in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, in the airport, there is a single section and a family section. So our minds can't quite grasp the divide, but he has had the privilege of seeing her at events because she's a half-sister. And he's seen her from afar, and he's a wreck, and he wants her. Verse 3, but Amnon had a friend, and his name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. I highlighted this. Why? Because in scripture, if it says the guy's a very crafty man, this guy's a pretty crafty guy. This is a, the Bible just doesn't wantonly throw out opinions or adjectives about descriptions. This man is typical of those in a royal court who's manipulating and using and getting intel and trying to conspire. And this guy's about to start right now. So, this crafty man is going to have a, have a role in, in, in just a little bit. Verse 4. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother's Absalom's sister. Now, hold on. I'm not going to break down every word in the Greek and Hebrew and stuff like that. But this word love, you need to know. Um, was more of a lust. What is a lust? There's no love and affection that it would be like attributed to a wife or something. Jonadab said to him, I'll tell you what, lie down on your bed, pretend to be ill, and when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. And it, it, what's interesting about this is a couple of things. I don't know if you noticed, it says, when my father's gonna come see me, when the father comes, see, David loved his kids. You will see that on and on and on. Loved him to the point where he should have done something at some times and he doesn't do something. In this particular place, he, that he says, your father's going to come see you, and he does. And so why does this, like, I want to see her make it with my own hands. If you were the son of the king to be the, on the throne, the food had to be prepared two ways. It had to be prepared by people that always prepared your food. And a cupbearer would, like Nehemiah would be somebody who would taste of it. Or it had to be made in a visual approach. Even a family member could not make food for the king or the son of the king away from the eyesight of the king. So they were just following some rules. It was interesting, by the way, you're going to mention Hebrew texts actually say they boil. Um, boiling, she's boiling dumplings. It says bacon cake, but it's a, a poor translation. It's, a, it's like a chicken, version of chicken soup, you know? And so um, verse seven, and then David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. She took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And then she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. 
And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. By the way, the way that's written is the way typically they would just ask people to leave. It wasn't like a yell, get out of here. They just re- remove the court. It's just them. So everyone went out from him. Verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber, chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I marry? Where could I carry my shame? As for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king for he will not withhold you from me, me from you. Verse 14, but he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. If, um, if he didn't think that was enough, didn't think that was tragic enough to think what just happened, what's about to unfold is typical of what happens when someone is shamed. And it's also typical what happens when any sin that we pursue shows its face. Verse 15, then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred so that, catch this one now, the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than any other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Go back to the, um, to the verse I think I had highlighted, Ariel, if you could. And it says that the hatred which he hated her was greater than the lust in which he had lust, lusted after And you think this poor woman has just been violated and now he's looking at her and he's in a disgust, like, get out of here. How dare you do this to me? How th- all the, all the, the things that ever bring us down, it's interesting Self-worth is still important. No matter how low we're brought down, pride, self-worth. Please don't let me walk out of that door. Don't let me walk out of that door. When I walk out of that door, I'll never be able to marry again. I'll never, I, I will not have my friends. I will not have any place of, of, of reputation. I will have to go into desolation don't send me out that door. She's begging, she's pleading. And then if he wasn't bad enough, he doesn't even call her by name. He calls a servant. He says, get her out of here and lock the door behind her. Doesn't even address her by name. And he hated her. Typical of someone who gets anything they want in life and will do anything they can to destroy somebody to get it. And it, I, I, I talk to people who, um, who always go back to things. They go back to the things that bring them down. And there's reasons. We all go back to things that, that somehow... It, I, I picked someone up from prison one time. Two days later, they were doing the same drug that landed them in prison. And they'd been in prison for a year and a half. 
And in my mind, I'm thinking, what have you done? What have you done? I have a different drug. I have different drugs, and all of us do. They're not, farm, they're, they're, they're not with a pill. It's not something you snort. There's different sins that you and I have and attachments that we still cling to, even though we know they'll destroy us. Our first thing is our mind goes to insecurities that convince us and remind us, this is how low you are. This is how bad you are. And we agree with it. We talk and we preach to ourselves. And we begin to, we begin to hold on to that sense of, of lack of self-worth. There's other addictions from food, from company we keep. To, we attach ourselves to those things and we don't let go. Why? Because even in our worthless condition, that is where we find our worth. Please don't let me walk out that door and everything's going to be different. When she woke up that, that morning, she was a princess. She's about to walk out of the door. A woman, even though she had been violated, a woman in this culture in this time is going to be deemed guilty. Should have never gone into that chamber. Should have never looked the way she does. The poor thing walks out in verse 18. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves. Some of your translations may say a coat of many colors. For thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So a servant put her out, bolted the door after her. But Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. His last five words, crying aloud as she went. This is not the guilt over just a moment. This woman is walking out, understanding her life is completely changed. She will never, ever be able to dress the way she was dressed. They They wouldn't have allowed it. She now has to dress as someone who's not a virgin, who's not married. Again, in our society, that, that, that doesn't register. But in this society, it will, you are never going to be invited to another home. You, know, you can't even go in a church. Her life is wrecked all because of the passion of a spoiled young man who wanted it and he wanted it right now. And then says, simply go. Verse 20. And her brother Absalom said to her, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister. Several things in these passages. Um, two years go by, Amnon and Absalom say nothing. When it says neither good nor bad, there is no dialogue, no discussion, nothing. He says to her, you're gonna come live with me. Not only is that brotherly love, that is customary law. If somebody had done something terrible and they had been ostracized from society, they would have been brought in to a family member's home. And in this case, the brother. The brother now is the patriarch to Tamar. And when it says desolate, those are the times when you got the books open and you're kind of reading and you look, oh, like, I wonder what desolate means. And it's barren, 
and alone. And this poor woman's life is that affected. But Absalom says to her, don't say anything. And for two years, he's going to think about what to do. There's, a, there's an interesting thing. I didn't highlight it, but verse 21. Do y'all catch this? It says, when King David heard all these things, he was very angry. Well, that's a given, right? You'd be angry. But I, remember, when we read scripture, here's what, now what, so what, right? We, will you look at this? This is the guy that's killed hundreds of people. He had no problem killing uh, the man that's, uh, that, uh, of the husband of a wife that he slept with. Oh, by the way, 18 of his loyal men too, didn't mind. He has killed hundreds of men with his own hands. Amnon has just done this. He's discredited who he is because now word's gone out. Oh yeah, the future king now sleeps with his sister. That's what happens. And Dave heard this and he, what happened? He, what's he gonna do? Is he gonna rise up? Is he gonna take him outside? Is he gonna even send him into exile? No, he was angry. Nothing could do. And if you look at it, there's a, I think, this is my own commentary, there's a really incredible tie-in to his previous sin. David looks at his life and says, you know what, I have nothing that I can offer. Because, you know what, he knows that I killed the husband of another woman. And here's what he, here, here's what he probably thinks. I can't bring anything to this argument. I can offer nothing into this place. Parents, this is my, this I think is important for all of us to hear. No matter, I always tell children, children, young adults, whatever, I tell them like, your parents, just so you know it, we're not, like, no matter how old someone gets, we're not all together. I mean, we've been through some things, we're conditioned, we're stronger, but we're still inside fragile adolescence at some point. And understand that when you see reactions, it's because we're hurt. If you see anger, it's because, well, there's pain. You know, kind of walk through that. And I tell you, there's two options you have as a parent when confronting a child and you have a guilty past. Here it is. You can cave in and say, I, how am I going to talk to my kid about drugs when I used to do drugs? How am I going to talk to my kid about running around with women when I've done it? How am I going to talk about when I've done this? Which means you have a choice. You can build your home on the standard and foundation of past mistakes and let that run, or you can build that home on the standard and foundation of God's grace in the healing power of Christ. And to be able to look at a son or daughter and say this, I have not only done what you've done, I've done far worse, and I don't want you to go through the pain that I went through or someone else went through. That is a foundation and a sermon that they will never forget. It shows humility. It shows God's grace. It shows God's forgiveness. And it shows real, genuine behavior. And so in this particular case, David doesn't take that action. He doesn't come along to Amnon and say, I, I have sinned. I've done this, I've done this very thing practically. And I'm begging you, don't go this route. But no, he, he's just angry. He does nothing. And so verse 23 after two full years, Absalom and the sheep shearers at Balazar, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. All right, what does this mean? Two years later, um, there's a 
sheep shearing event when it'd be like if, if you know if we lived in Iowa and they were coming to get the cattle and take the you know there, there might be a parade through town it's a big deal this was shearing a sheep was a big deal sheep shares to get these these folks to come in would come in and you would have to negotiate to get them at a certain place because they would go they were nomadic they went from herd to herd and so you're going to throw a party you're going to throw a festival it's about 12 miles from Jerusalem and so Absalom uh, calls him in. He's invited all the king's sons. Remember, there's a lot of sons. There's multiple wives. So he invites them. And then um, he says, verse 24, and Absalom came to the king and said, behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, no, my son, let us not all go lest we be burdensome to you. But he pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom, here it is, watch this. Then Absalom said, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? Did you? The king is not blind. The king knows Absalom and Amnon have not talked for two years. He goes, well, what are you doing? Why do you want him to go? Verse 27, but Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. Kind of an interesting picture there, isn't it? You know, you, just to give you a little historical background, the, the sons would have arrived with their servants. Absalom was not second ranking guy. He was probably, he was just, you were number one or that was it. And so he's there with a, he had land he asked his other half-brothers and brothers, well, could you come? And they, sure, we'll go. And there's Amnon. Amnon's probably sitting next to his favorite brothers going, you know, watch out, see what's going on. But they're going to get him drunk. And Amnon gets drunk. And then Absalom does exactly what, is David, what David, his father, did. What, had his servants kill someone. So he says, get him drunk. He says, and when he's drunk, kill him. And don't you be afraid. For I'm the one who gave you the command. I'm the one that gave you the order. And nothing's going to happen to you. you now go. And at this moment, they go over and kill him. And then we have this picture of all the sons. And your, your first thought is, what are they doing? And why are they riding mules, right? Um, first of all, the mules, camels were used for heavy transport. Tra transport. Horses were used explicitly for uh, cavalry and, and um, uh, kings. The mules were meant to be used as a sign of, of humility amongst the people. So princes were made to ride on mules. They were stubborn then as they are now. And so he said, I want you to um, strike him when he's drunk. And they do. They kill him. And the sons jump up, get on their mules, and take off. Why? You have to be thinking. They know nothing about this. Keep in mind, two years have passed. Absalom... They didn't see Absalom come over there and stab him. They just saw a bunch of men go over there and kill him. Immediately, I guarantee these men think this is a coup. 
This is a coup. They're after all of us. And these men jumped, wishing they were on anything other than a donkey, and they took off. And so at this moment, they're, they're, they're gone. And now what's about to unfold is, is a really eerie rumor. And I'm, and I'm always quick to tell you what I'm going to offer is commentary. <laughs> but there is room, there's a rumor about to hit. David's at home in Jerusalem, 12 miles away. Verse 30. While they're on their way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Can you imagine? The word gets back. Absalom has killed every one of your sons. The day, uh, how does David react? Verse 31. Then the king arose, tore his garments, lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonabab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother said, remember, this is the, this is the, remember Jonabab, this is the crafty one, right? He says, let my, my Lord suppose they have, all been, they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from this day that he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my Lord, the king, so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. So you have to think, this is not, I don't think this is crucial to the study, but I think as we're walking verse by verse, think about this. Amnon's killed. The sons jump on the mules and they're riding out. A rider gets to the palace first and runs in and says, all the sons are dead. All of them are killed. David's reaction is beyond. He's, thinking, he, he's like, he's just lost his entire dynasty. So he just starts shredding his clothes. The servants start shredding their clothes. They're wailing. Then here comes the crafty guy. Oh, my king. No, 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 no. It's probably Amnon. Absalom just killed him. So that he's going to lessen the blow. I mean, at this point, it's going to be bad enough. Your firstborn's dead. But in this case, at least not all of them are dead. And then the crafty guy says this. Now for, let the king, not the king take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead for Amnon alone is dead. He knew Amnon was dead. He knew Absalom had something to do with it, which means he was probably scheming with Absalom. This guy was working both angles the whole time. He was courting one side of the court. He was courting another side of the court. But you notice this guy too, he said, uh, he did this because Amnon violated your daughter. Oh, you sick man. You're the one who said, I'll go bring her over here. You're the one who had the great idea. You're the one who made this whole thing happen. That is typical of the worthlessness of who we are as sinful people. Until you ever fall into diverse, uh, adversity, until you ever fall into pain, you will never know your friends. Trust me. Mark that down. Write it down. Uh, book of Jake. I can tell you, you will know your friends. Yeah. In this place, he is looking and he is, he's looking at the king and he says, one son is dead. Verse 34, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, 34. But Absalom fled. And the young man who kept watch, he lifted up his eyes and he looked. And behold, many people were coming from the road behind him. 
by the side of the mountain. Remember, this is the fortress where David is. And Jonabab said to the king, behold, the king's sons have come as your servant said. See, the braggadocious kind of censor. So it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of, you know who, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur. And there was three years. This is an interesting uh, verse. This is a verse that in spite of David being a bad dad, a man who killed people, a man who did a lot of things, but a man who was a man after God's own heart. Look at this last verse of the chapter. And the spirit of the king, David, longed to go out to Absalom. But watch the rest of these words. Because he was comforted about Amnon, Amnon since he was dead. That's a, um, David, for all his weaknesses, never had a problem accepting when someone had gone on. When his baby died, and it was, baby was sick, he was crying, he was weeping, he wouldn't come out of his chambers. When the baby died, he walked out and he said, why are you okay? He goes, because I'm gonna see my child again. He had a total grasp on how to mourn. You know, the reason we as Christians in the scripture says we mourn differently, it's because we mourn the loss of what we have here, but we never mourn the ones we love that are in heaven. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want anyone who I love, they're very special to me, to leave what they have to come back to us. When you start to focus on the beauty of heaven, you start to see how surreally inadequate this life really is. All that we hold dear, all the value we put on, all the, all the, all the while we say, this is everything, this is not. But we hold it dear as best we can. But the next life is real life. And so it's interesting. I think I wouldn't want a whole book being written about me. Would you want a book being written about you? I wouldn't, you know, and you had people ripping you apart fat preachers up there going, oh yeah, that's Stephen Moreland's a jerk, you know. But I mean, you know, you wouldn't want, you wouldn't want people shredding you left and right. But I think occasionally, can you throw something out that's, that's heartfelt? And the king knew how to mourn. But when I look at this message and I keep thinking, man, how can I, what, what do we talk about? The sin of Amnon? We think about the sin of Absalom killing someone. We think about an absent father and David. But what's interesting is this, is Tamar, I think, is our study today. To when we walk out of here, we leave. Tamar is a person that experienced something she should never have experienced, Ever. And the poor thing clung on to what happened as her identity. I went to a, um, it was a pregnancy care center banquet. And it was, it was huge. It was like a thousand people. And the pastor from Bay Hope, old Van Dyke Methodist, got up and, and spoke. And they, they had bought like this, um, what do they call those things? Ultrasounds, right? Ultrasound. Yeah, like this 3D thing, and it just shows the baby. And she's up there. I mean, she's beautiful. She's eloquent. She's well-dressed. She's passionate. you just Christ-centered. 
And then she says midway through, ever since I had my abortion, when I knew that God redeemed me and restored me and gave me this purpose. I'm thinking, this is the driver of, the, of, of life in, in pregnancy form in the Bay Area. Started multiple places. And she had been at a place where she crawled out and said, I have no worth. You can find your worth in those things and your lack of worth in those things. But God is the one who pulls you out. And so it's, it's a remarkable thing to see that all of us have attachments we make, you and I make, no different than the Tamar being in a bed, grabbing the sheets and saying, don't kick me out, don't let me go. And you always wonder, why, did the, why does my kid keep going back with that crew? Why does he go with these guys when he, they know what's gonna happen? Logic and reason mean nothing in the arena of self-worth, nothing. And then what happens people get older? What do you do? You still gravitate towards the people that give you self-worth. We're broken, shattered people finding broken other shattered people. And I don't care if you're a drunk, I don't care if you're a drug addict or you're a Bible-toting Christian. That's what we do. We gravitate to anything that will keep us comfortable. But then there's a change factor. And it's called the Holy Spirit. And it calls, and it says this. He says, I am going to redeem you and I'm going to call you and I'm going to give you a sense of self-worth you've never had. It doesn't come through reading self-help books. And I'm not against self-help books. It comes through this. It comes through the power of the Holy Spirit moving in you. And that's up to you and the Holy Spirit. All I do, we never be a church where, oh, we come in on a 1030 or, or nine o'clock service here at Creekside. And this is where we, we get our religion and we move on. I hope there's something in here that breaks down a, a, a brick in, in the heart that is, you put up against anything that you think would love you beyond what you're comfortable in being loved. I would hope that in anything you would be able to see, there is a sense of worth that Christ finds in you that you never thought you would have in yourself. Throughout scripture, we have seen the Bible has held nothing back. And what's interesting is this. Um, Jesus, when he came, It's so crazy to think in a society and culture where image and reputation were king, he went after a person like Tamar first. He went to the ones who were desolate and barren and alone. He went to the ones who, by the way, were deemed a prostitute. One who, do, who said that the person couldn't even walk in a church had to talk to um, one man in a tree, Pratt. He went to places where no church would go. Why? Because church then can be like church now if we're not careful. We protect ourselves. We guard ourselves. We start thinking about what goes on out there. We are in a protected bubble. We really are. We went to the 
human trafficking conference that uh, Cameron, you sponsored. It was phenomenal. What a job you did. The mayor of Tampa and so many people were there, law enforcement agencies. And they woke you us up to tell us exactly what goes on. That there are, there are young ladies who are introverts who are brought in by conniving evil men and, and fed these lies and then gifts. And before you know it, 18, 19 years old, they're, they're sleeping around and then all of a sudden they're doing something. And this happens by the thousands in this area. And so you immediately think, wow, you know, my mind, I, I think back, I think of these, 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 uh, these clubs, these places where Women are, they're forced to, they're forced to dance for money and because of the drug addictions that they get them on and that. And you know, even, even me for confession, I have to look and think, how in a Christ-centered way can I even reach someone like that? But it's interesting. Jesus sees Tamar before she ever went in the chamber and this who she'll be. He doesn't see those ladies dancing on Dale Mabry by nicknames like Sunshine and Skittles and stuff like that. She doesn't, they, they, they don't see him that way. She, he knows them. No, I'm being serious. No. He knows them by names like Allison, like Ashley, a little girl who had a first birthday party. That was a big deal. He's a little girl who had a first day of school. He sees them differently. He sees you differently. Every one of us. And so he sees us the way he sees his son. And so it's kind of a big deal when we say, have you ever received Jesus into your heart, into your life to be your savior? It's so that you can finally see in yourself what he sees in you when you call on him to be your father. And to think of all the shame she didn't want to have when she walked out that door, Jesus not only came to save that shame, he died in a form of shame. In all the grandeur of heaven, and all heaven offered in the majesty of, of what he even said. Do you not know when he looked at Peter and he cut off Malchus's ear? Do you not understand the legions of, of, of horror I could bring on these men through the ranks of my angels? The regality he left to hang in a worthless, uh, no esteemed position. That is absolute love. And so I think to myself, if God can love in the way he's loved in the New Testament and I go to somebody who, let's say, is working at one of these bars and we think, man, how am I going to impress on her? How am I going to do it? How am I going to tell her God loves you for who you are when, you ready for this? You and I don't buy into it first. That means no matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, that you have a choice to lie in the bed of your misery and your pain or to rest in the fact that God has come to rescue and redeem you. And you are not desolate and alone anymore. 
remember um, Shale, when we first started this thing, we had plenty of time on our hands. We said, we're going to be Uber drivers at night for like five, ten hours a month and just really get to know people. I did it. You didn't. I was faithful. <laughs> but then again, you're bivocational, so I get it. You don't get a paycheck. Sit back there. I, so I'm driving around for several months, you know, picking up people I'm, at night. And I, I, I go to St. Petersburg and I look and this girl's coming out of the house, chewing her gum. She throws a bag in the back. She goes, I'll be right back. You got to remember, I was saved at 23. So I unfortunately know the darkness of sin and mistakes I've made before. And I knew right away. Well, she's, I know exactly. She's a dancer and she's... Um, she gets the rest of herself. She comes in the car. And I remember I looked down at my little navigation thing on my phone, and I had 23 minutes to talk to her. And I'm like, oh, what do I say? You know, Sunday school answer. You know, you know, God loves you, and you know, you don't have to do. That. I mean, like, I mean, I'm sitting there thinking, what am I going to do? And, and I'm going on and on and on, and just talking to. If I didn't where you from? Yeah, you know, yeah, you, bridge's got a lot of traffic on it, and you know. She said, you drive for Uber? Like, no, I'm, uh, sometimes, you know, and I, I always had this thing. I tell Shale, we never identify as a pastor. You just don't. Because then, you're, then I'm not going to talk to you like normal, you know. And I was like, well, so yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. And she goes, oh, wow, I used to go to church. And she, all of a sudden, I start hearing these things. We end up parking, and she's right outside work. And I, I wish I could get up here and tell you how oh, she said, take me home and I'm going to be a teacher or something. She didn't, you know, I, but, but we did have a conversation that blossomed into, yeah, I, this is not right, but it wasn't that this is not right. It's that this is not you. It's not about a decision. It's about you. It's that you have drawn your self-worth on what men have thrown at you and said to you and done to you. Don't live in desolation. Don't go to a place where no one will ever have you in the way you should be. And so I think back in my life and I'm thinking I'm, I'm, all of us have our own things. Every one of us have our own drug like we said, food, it could be emotions, it could be what, we always go back to what makes us have worth. I told you guys a story when we first came together as a church, and I think it's okay to repeat because it was pretty profound to me. I was, having, I was leading a Bible study at John Knox Village, you know, we know where that is on Fletcher? It's an independent living facility, assisted living facility as well, and they had a, what they call a Vesper service, which is like a church service in the middle of the day, so I go there and I'm preaching, you know, talking, going through the study, and this lady um, is, have you ever been around somebody that's just so remarkably of heaven than they are here? I mean, just as godly as people you've ever, this woman is just as godly and she's late, mid, late eighties. I mean, perfect from head to toe and how she's dressed. And she's, she introduces, she introduced me in such a way I wanted to meet me. You know what I mean? And she, she just quotes scripture, but it just had this sweet way about her. And she says, well, um, uh, she's, I said, well, listen, thank you. She says, I'll walk you to the car. And she's on a walker. And I'm thinking, no, I'm good. She goes, what else do I have to do? Come on. You know, she's, and so we get in the elevator and we're going down and we get outside and we go to the car and we get in the car and I'm finally like, 
I can't thank you enough. What I saw up there and who you are, how you're running the show up there, it's, man, you're incredible. She goes, oh, you don't know me. You know, I was like, no, I know we always say that. But I said, there's such a godliness that just emits from you. I, wish you. I just wish you were around me all the time. And she says, God's been really good, but you didn't know me always. I'm like, yeah. And, uh, and I said, yeah, I'd love to hear that story. She said, well, um, I, yeah, she said I got saved in my 40s. She said, I used to go bar to bar to bar and hang out and just go home with this guy and that guy. And, and uh, she said, my sister invited me to a women's conference. She said, I was you know, like, okay, this is going to be your birthday and Christmas gift wrapped up. I told her I'd go. And so she went. She said, it was incredible. She, got led, she found Christ at that conference. And she goes, she says, I want to go to church with you. She goes to church on a Sunday. And the pastor talked about what it means to be pure. You, know, you are pure in Christ, and Christ sees you as pure when you're one of his. And she can't even think. And at the end of the service, she's walking out. She can't even talk. And she gets to, she's getting close to her car, and her sister's like, you want to go get lunch? She goes, I, no, I can't, I can't. She says, what is it? She said, I'm a fake. I'm a fraud. I just sat in church and listened to a pastor look at me and say, you are pure. You don't know. And she looks at her sister. She said, you never knew what I did. She said, I've been with hundreds of men, some for their looks and some for their money. She says, I have nothing to offer in this life. And even when I'm saved, now I realize I'm a fake and I'm a fraud and I'm nothing. And she says, then you need to know that God has said that you're pure. You are pure in him and you're pure. And she said, okay, just pray. She said, pray. The Holy Spirit does something to just break you of this. And so the next day she goes in for a doctor's appointment to get her blood results. She goes in, the doctor walks in and the doctor opens the folder. And she says, the doctor looked at me and we were the same age, the lady doctor. And uh, she looked at the folder. She said, yep, you're pure. She said, what? She said, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Negative, negative, negative. It's just, uh, it's, uh, I don't know why I said it. I don't know why I said pure. But yeah, it's negative. You're good. And she starts breaking down, bawling, crying. And she goes, you don't understand. Negative is a good thing. She goes, I know it's a good thing. Say the word pure again. And so she says, you're pure. And she just wept. And she said, at that moment is when I knew God is so good. He doesn't stop the sermon in ladies' conferences. He doesn't stop it in a sermon. It goes beyond. It's in a doctor's waiting room. It's in a doctor's office. And it's in the line of a grocery store. It's in lunch at Carabas. It's somewhere, anywhere, that you allow the Holy Spirit to move in you and to tell you who you are. There's a danger about coming together corporately. We need to come together corporately. We're commanded to come together. But so many times we hear the message, what do we think of? He needs it. She needs it. We need it. I need it. You need it. This is for everyone. You and I have been redeemed, been bought, been purchased at at a price we cannot grasp with our mind, but we can grasp with our soul. And he has saved us. And then according to scripture, he says, It's in Isaiah, it's beautiful. It says, fear not, for I've called you, I've called you by name. 
I've redeemed you. And here's the best part. And you are mine. Stronger than any physical form that would ever protect you. Greater than any love you've ever met on this earth. More promising than any hope you ever have. That God calls you his. Pray with me, please. Jesus, you are so good. Lord, we thank you for who you are in our life. And Lord, how you restore, how you build, how you equip. But Lord, how you just call us one of yours. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us so much. And Lord, we just pray that if there's anyone in here who doesn't know you as a savior, they've never taken that step, they would simply ask the best minister that probably is a person they came with or come to one of us. And we can talk today or we can go meet next week and do whatever and, and just talk about that. But Father, for the believers in here too, I pray right now that each one sees their value in you. Not what they're wearing, not how they live, not what's happened to them or what they've done. Father, for in you is our identity. And for that, we are grateful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, would you stand?